All right. Well, as for the rest of us, open up our Bibles to the book of Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. I want to stretch you a little bit tonight if I can. Can I do that? I want to stretch you tonight a little bit. Uh, we've been walking through, of course, the book of Revelation, been finding it's phenomenal. Uh, began studying the book uh, just a couple years ago, and I know you're thinking he's in chapter 1, <laughs> but I didn't preach it for a while. And uh, it just, I was so overwhelmed with what I was finding that I just began to share it in these kinds of settings. And, uh, of course, revival settings and such. Um, we begin to find that the emphasis in the book of Revelation is not on end times. It's not on when gas prices are going to come down. It's not necessarily a timeline to find out when Jesus is going to come back. The emphasis is on Jesus overcoming and everything that God sought out to accomplish. This is a long statement. Everything God sought out to accomplish in terms of our redemption is found complete in Jesus. Period. It's done. All we have to do is accept it. Do you realize that? That's, that's phenomenal. All we have to do is accept it. He's paid everything. Everything's accepted. It's all ready. In fact, he says, listen, I'm going to head out and prepare a place for you. Okay? I'm going to head out and prepare a place for you. I'm coming back. It's done. All we have to do is accept it, which is remarkable. Okay? This is how, the book of Revelation is how, as you come down, and it is about end time stuff, okay? But you understand we've been living in the end times since Jesus came back. Book of Hebrews. Those were the last days Paul writes about. Okay? So we've been living in this, this last day period for a couple thousand years. And of course it's going to come down to the last day. But this, this prophecy shows about how everything that God set out to accomplish in that redemption of man is found complete in Jesus Christ. It's a we win statement. We know how it ends. Which is really significant. Now... There are a few different uh, sections, and I didn't give you this last night, I'm going to kind of give this to you in chunks as we move along, that there are three basic sections in the book of Revelation. In other words, if you wanted to slice the, the prophecy up to study it, there's, uh, you would find that there's basic three natural divisions in the prophecy. The first section is chapter 1, okay? That's an introductory chapter. Everything going on within the first chapter is for the purpose of introducing that introduction is given to seven churches in the province of Asia, which make up the second section. So first section is an introduction. Second section is chapter 2 and 3. That's who the introduction is given to. It's introduced to those seven churches, chapter 2 and 3. The third section is what actually is being introduced. So you have an introduction to seven churches of the prophecy. And the actual prophecy begins at chapter 4 and extends down through the end of the book. So you have three basic sections. I've really hunkered down in the first chapter for a couple reasons. First off, because most scholars skip it to get to the good stuff. And the second reason is, from what I'm finding, this is the good stuff. Because he takes chapter 4 to chapter 22 and he condenses that, down, condenses that down to one chapter and he really focuses us in on what he wants to talk about in the prophecy. So this first chapter is golden. And he's introducing in the introduction four things. I'm not going to overload you with that tonight because you're already looking overloaded. But we'll talk about that tomorrow. He introduces four things to the people who's going to read this. We're looking at the last one, verses 9 down through verse 20. And uh, that's, of course, the Patmos section. And the Patmos section is all about John, who's on the island of Patmos. I thought about sharing the whole kingdom call thing when we looked at the teens. That's just a phenomenal study. I may throw it in 
Wednesday? I don't know. We just kind of skipped it. We're going to verses 12 through 16 tonight. But um, verses 9 through 11 is John. He's on the island of Patmos. And it's this unique day in his life. He's never had anything like it. God comes down and just moves upon his life and says, Hey, uh, you have not just wandered here. I haven't forgotten about you. Uh, you are literally living in my plan as it is unfolding, which is remarkable. And he's been called to take part in this uh, giving of this prophecy. Now, uh, so verses 9 through 11 is that call. And you note in verse 11... He hears this voice behind him speaking, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, and he lists those seven churches. In verse 12, he turns around. Okay, here's where the stretching comes. Are you ready? Verse 12, he turns around to see who's speaking to him. He literally just turns, it says in verse 12, I turn to see whose voice was speaking to me. He hears his voice, he turns to see that voice. And in verses 12 down through verse 16, you have an elaborate picture of who it's who Jesus is you have an elaborate picture of who Jesus is and how he is ministering to the seven churches okay Jesus is still ministering to you and I okay we are hear this we are able to be who we've been called to be because of Jesus it's really significant so he has this elaborate picture of Jesus to introduce what which colors this whole section the number one focus of Jesus person what's what who he is in verses 12 through 16 centers on the phrase son of man in verse 13 he turns around he sees seven golden lampstands and in the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man that is extremely significant okay it's extremely significant it's significant, first off, because he's not confusing Jesus with an angel. This is not a spirit. This is not some superhuman figure. John turns and says, hey, wow, it's a human being. It's someone like a son of man, which is very significant. See, I heard growing up in church that Jesus came and lived as a man for 33 years, died on a cross, and then he went back to be God like he always was. That's not biblical. The sacrifice that Jesus made was not a 33-year sacrifice. The sacrifice that Jesus made was eternal. He was, we believe Jesus was physically born a man. We, we believe that, right? I believe that. Do you believe that? Okay. Yeah, he was physically born a man. We believe he physically lived as a man. I think we believe that. We believe that he physically died as a man. In other words, he just didn't fake it. He wasn't up there just looking out his eyes. He, he physically died as a man. We believe that, right? We believe that he physically raised from the dead. That's really significant. Jesus physically raised from the dead, okay, as a man. We believe that he physically ascended as a man, human being, man. And before he ascended, he sat down and physically ate, you know, food with his disciples. They reached out and touched him. They saw his, he was physically a man. He physically ascended. The scripture tells us that he's going to physically return just like he physically left. And along with this verse, we know that he is physical now. Jesus became God, who is Jesus is, was, and always will be God, came down and limited. He identified. The scripture says that he became the incarnate human being. In other words, he came down and took on flesh and identified with us in who we are, identified with us in our weakness. He became a man forever he's still God 100% God but he's God living as a man lives 
When John turns, he sees someone, he's like a son of man. He's a human being. One of the reasons, and this is something that really stretched me, and I want to I present it to you. One of the things we're finding in the church, and I, I can't really pinpoint it on why, because it seems to be across the board, both in the Church of the Nazarene, in the United Methodist Church, in the Wesleyan Church, in the Missionary Church, in the, I mean, you go, Brethren in Christ, I mean, it's everywhere. There seems to be what I would call a dumbed-down version of Christianity that's been spread throughout the churches. And what that dumbed down, what I mean by dumbed down version is that we believe, I believe that the Bible says that Jesus came and lived the life that you and I are called to live. Period. He's not super Christian. I believe, in fact, he is ordinary, average, don't get into heaven without it Christianity. You were supposed to say amen, but that's all right. Okay, so we believe that's, I believe that. I believe that's the, he's the first among many. Okay? He's the first among many. Jesus is what God intended for man to look like. Paul says that the first Adam came, blew it, fell into sin, so God sent the second Adam. And so we see how the first Adam was supposed to look like when we look at the second Adam. And so Jesus came and literally wants to restore us to what this first Adam looked like. This is what you and I are called to look like. Jesus is that. What we're finding in the church, there's a dumbed-down version of that. People look at Jesus and say, well, hey, he's Jesus. I can't live like he's living. I can't live without sinning. I mean, who can live without cheating on their spouse? Seriously, who can live like that? One man can live without porn. I mean, really. What woman can live without leaning on her emotions? See, who can literally travel and drive down the road looking like Jesus? That's just, that's just ridiculous. I believe that's the message of the gospel, folks. I don't think you have to live like that. I believe you can live... I, seriously, I believe the number one sign of a Christian life is a victorious life. Yeah. Not my message. Not my message. So I'm not buying into the dumbed-down version of Christianity. Period. I believe that Jesus came and demonstrated the life we're called to live. Now... Some of the people will come to me and say, well, listen, I'm not saying you're, you can live in sin, but see, I, we look at Jesus and Jeremiah, I can't walk on water. See, look at Jesus and say, I'm not God. What if I propose to you that Jesus came and lived, the, He is God. I don't fight over much, but I fight over that. Okay, He is God. You say He's not God, we can step outside, I've been lifting a little bit, you know, hey. Alright. Jesus is, was, and always will be God. But he is God who came down and identified with me. The only difference between Jesus and I living on earth is Jesus was not born in sin. He was sinless. He was born in an intimate, perfect relationship with the Father, which is not an ability, it's a relational issue. Because when it comes down to it, Jesus was actually born in a sin-scarred body. He aged. He got, probably got gray hair. He got tired. He had emotions. Think about this. God can't be tempted, but Jesus could. See, he came and identified with us. He lived as I lived. He grew as I grew. He learned as I learned. In perfect intimacy and oneness and union with the Father. He came and lived as a human being. In fact... You would say, well, why don't you stop ranting and raving? (laughs) 
It's so fun. And why don't you, why don't you give us a couple passages that'll go, that'll, that'll shed some light on what you're saying. Well, I'd love to. Turn back with me, if you'd be willing, turn back with me to the book of Acts. Chapter 2. If anybody could get away with talking like this, it's going to be Peter. Okay? And Peter says stuff that I just am amazed at. By the way, this is all over the New Testament, but I'm going to give you Peter's voice. This is Book of Pente- This is Pentecost Day. This is 3,000 are about to be saved. This is, we go from 120 disciples to 3,120. I mean, this is early church. This is first sermon. You don't want to get this one wrong. It's going to be published in the new- newspaper. They're going to have it on the records. It's going to be out on CD. You do not want to mess up this sermon. You understand? It's the very first one. Listen to what he says about Jesus. Not my words, this is the word. Uh, Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. He stands up and he says this. Now, don't read ahead, follow along with me. He says, men of Israel, listen to these words. Focus is what he says. Jesus the Nazarene, a man. Your NIV says, Jesus of Nazareth was a man. Do you realize in this entire section, he never once even mentions that he's God? Now, one time. You're going to say, well, he doesn't believe Jesus is God. Come on. Jesus said, you're this Christ, the son of the living God. He knows that he's God. But what he's stressing is, listen, folks. Jesus was a man as you and I are a man. He had bodily drives, just like you and I have bodily drives. In fact, you say, well, he was God. Hey, he came down and was born in the same sin-scarred body that you and I have. He got aches and pains. He got tired. He had a sex drive that had to come under the authority of the Father. He had emotions that had to come under the authority of the Father. He was tempted. He had to come under the authority of the Father. Just like you and I have. And living in absolute obedience. He says, Jesus of Nazareth was a man. And listen to him as he goes on. He was a man clearly attested to you by God with powerful deeds, wonders, and miraculous signs. And here it is. That God performed among you through him. As you yourselves know. In other words, he says, listen, how do you know that he's God? Because God did the miracles through him. See, Jesus, this is a big difference. See, if we believe that Jesus came down and did miracles because he was God, then he could do something I can't do. But if he came down and assumed the same kind of limitations that you and I have, he's God. He has a right to all that stuff, but setting it aside to live as you and I live and become sourced by God as you and I are to be sourced by God, he can demonstrate who we're called to be. Can you wrap your mind around that? That's really significant. See, that tells us if he overcame, we can overcome. That's really important to me, guys. Really important to me. I can be who he's called me to be. See, there are three... uh, uh, Search this out. There are three qualities that seem to be always associated with God. They're called the omni qualities. If you've been around church for any amount of time, I'm sure you've heard of them. First one is omnipresent. God is omnipresent. He's everywhere at the same time. Jesus couldn't have that and be a human being. Because you and I aren't like that. Oh, can you imagine the revivals I could preach? (laughs) I mean, Jesus didn't have that. 
You don't have anywhere in the New Testament where Jesus tells His disciples when they're in Galilee that they're going to go down to Jerusalem. And He never says, and I'm already there. Because He had to foot it like they did. He wasn't omnipresent. He was not omniscient. He wasn't all-knowing. He wasn't all-knowing. You'd say, come on. If I could tell you one thing that Jesus did not know, just one thing. He may know a lot, but he didn't know one thing. He's not all-knowing. You would say, okay, he's not omniscient. The disciples ask him, when are you coming back? Matthew chapter 24. What did Jesus say? Beats me. <laughs> he didn't know everything. Well, then how did he know the things that he knew? He wasn't all-powerful. There were times he didn't do miracles. There were times that he did miracles when he didn't even know he was doing miracles. The woman who comes up and touches him, he says, power left me. God did through him. Jesus was a man. Here's where I'm going to lose some of you. Most people are going, all right, I think, yeah, that, okay. I've never thought of that, but that's okay, yeah, wow, that's really, and you're going to have to process that. Can I, can I stretch you a little bit more? Take a deep breath. Breathe in and breathe out. It's one thing to say that Jesus came down and lived among us, but it's another thing, like the book of Isaiah says, that said he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. I met a family. Luke chapter 2. I met a family in Michigan. <laughs> This is hysterical. I met a family in Michigan. True story. Okay? Not a fabricated one. True story. I met a family in Michigan. Their daughter uh, invited a friend to church. Mom dropped her off. She was ecstatic. Never been to church before. Showing her all the ropes. Very cold. This is in December. Very, very cold. And um, uh, they were there in the teen group doing that thing. And, and they were preteen. They were both 11. And uh, after church was over, um, she just thought that her friend's parents were coming back to pick her up. Girl got bundled up, started walking. And she goes, where are you going? She goes, well, I, my mom can't take me home. I'm just going to have to walk. And it was like a mile and a half. And it was cold. You, I mean, hey, it's Michigan. Okay, it was cold. I'm talking like five, six degrees out. And the girl said, I can't let you do that. Just, and to listen to this girl tell the story, as she tried to explain to her parents later, tell her story of just, hey, she thought of her. Hey, I could never let her do that. And just the compassion and the, hey, Jesus wouldn't do that. And, and just, you know what she decided to do? I'll walk home with her. I'll walk home with her. Just used her heart. Just walked with her. And we was like, yes! Until she didn't tell her parents. She just went out and just walked home. Parents were incredibly, hysterically worried. And the members of the church saw him walking down the highway, highway, Picked him up, took him home, talked about the bro back to church, called on the cell phone, and she did this not using your head, 11, 12 year old thing. You had 11, 12 year old, okay? Good heart, no brain, okay? That's 11 or 12 year old, okay? You think Jesus had that? Are you with me? Do you think Jesus did that stuff? Do you think he was a real deal baby, real deal? 11, 12-year-old, or do you think he just faked it? Did he have to be potty trained? Did he have to learn? If he's human, folks. See, my mom called me a bonehead. Okay? 
I'm not about to call, but hey. Was he a true 11 and 12 year old? I think he was. I think I can show you biblically he was. Luke chapter 2. Go down with me if you'd be willing to verse 41. If you could drop some of your preconceived notions and listen to the passage, I want to walk you through something. Now, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem every year. Really important they, that Luke makes this distinction. Don't read ahead. Makes this distinction every year. In other words, hey, this was routine. He lived within the vicinity where if you were a Jewish male, three feasts, you were required to go down and celebrate. Okay? One, at least you had to be there. They went to celebrate. Every year, they had friends, family, acquaintances. They all came down in their village together to celebrate. Jesus was familiar with the routine. Every year, the Feast of the Passover, verse 42, when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. Second time, it's emphasized every year. Verse 43, but when the feast was over, as they were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. Now hear this. I've heard this talked about, preached about, everything, where, oh boy, they left bad parenting. No, that's not what the passage says. The grammar says routine. Jesus knew that routine. They went to Jerusalem to celebrate this. The boy Jesus initiated stayed behind. Listen to how this unfolds. Oh, I lost myself. His parents did not know it. Verse 44. But because they, uh, because they assumed that he was in their group of travelers, they went a day's journey. Then they began to look for him, which means they stopped off at a rest area, cooking some hot dogs, and said, hey, make sure you get Jesus. I haven't seen him in a while, and he's not in the other RVs. Where is he at? They're panicking. They went one day out, the text says. Okay? When they did not find him, verse 45, they returned to Jerusalem to look for him. That's one day back, two days. Okay? After three days, that's five days, hunting for, hunting for 12-year-old Jesus. After three days, they found him in the temple court, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Verses 27 and, uh, is really, really significant. Okay? It's, it's intent. It's phenomenal. He says, And all who heard Jesus were astonished at his understanding and his answers. Okay? Uh, in fact, the end of verse uh, 46 says, He was sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking questions. Um, his parents questioned him. When his parents saw him, they were and this, my translation says overwhelmed. The NIV is misleading. The NIV says astonished, which is, it's not like they ran in the temple and was like, Jesus, wow, man, so good to see you. Neat. <laughs> no, that's not what they were saying. Okay? That's not what they were saying. His parents were overwhelmed. His mother said to him, child, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been looking for you anxiously. Again, motive. Listen to his heart. But he replied, why were you looking for me? Didn't you know that I had to be about my father? And actually, in the original language, house is not there. I had to be about him. Good intention. Twelve-year-old mind. See, there's a difference between spiritual discernment and literally just the age of being able to thought and put together thoughts and... See, why have you treated like this? He said, I had to be about my father. And most translations leave out where she says, Father's house, my foot, you're grounded. But that's left, that's left out of mind. Uh, in, in verse 50, 
In verse 50 it says, Yet his parents did not understand the remark he made to them. Then he went down with them, listen to this, came to Nazareth and became obedient. Which means, hey, I'm going to submit. He became obedient to them. His mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and the people. He grew. There's a difference biblically between sin and mistakes. See, I do, I'm a man. I do men. Men do bonehead things. You don't like that term? I'm sorry. We just do. Seriously. We do things not on purpose, not rebellion, but we just. Seriously, we do that kind of stuff. Folks, that means a lot to me. Jesus identified with me in that kind of stuff. He grew through that kind of stuff. Now, Revelation chapter 1. This is really significant. I had to walk you through some of that. And while you're going back to Revelation, if you want to mark Hebrews chapter 1, that's going to be really important for us in a few moments. When John turns around, he sees Jesus, who's a man, the Son of Man. He is God, always has been God, but He's God that's come down and demonstrated the kind of life. He's identified with us in every way, demonstrating the kind of life that you and I have been called to live. He's ministering to us. Now, this is really important, because Jesus ministers to us. Are you with me? Jesus ministers to us, not only by sourcing us and and, and working in our lives and bringing to pass as the Father through Jesus, now Jesus through us. As the Father ministered through Jesus, miracles and insight and movement, Jesus now does that through us. As the Father moved through Jesus, Jesus now moves through us. Really significant. That's happening, but Jesus is demonstrating to us, this is what you're to look like. Okay? Really significant. Now, verses 12 through 16 give us the attributes of who Jesus is, and who we are to look like. Jesus ministers to the seven churches by showing this is what's supposed to be going on inside of you. It's going on inside of me. I want to look with you specifically tonight, and it's very quick, at verse 15. And we've got sermons, uh, studies on verses 12, 13, 1 on 14, and we'll have uh, 2 and 15 and 3 and 16. And this is the uh, second one in verse 15. His feet were like polished bronze refined in a furnace. And here's what we're going to look at tonight. His voice was like the roar of many waters. Now, one of the things that you have to work through, especially in Revelation, is the Old Testament imagery. Okay? This is easy for us to understand. God worked this way, related this way in an Old Testament hour with God's people. He works this way and relates to us in this hour with God's people. It's an old covenant. We're not living under that anymore. We're living under a new covenant volumes to talk about, okay? But there's Old Covenant imagery that is still used in the New Covenant that God did this in the Old Testament and it is fulfilled in Jesus. You say, what do you mean? It's all over the passages. For instance, in verse 12, when John turns around, he sees seven golden lampstands. As you will note, when you come down to verse 20, the seven uh, churches are the seven lampstands. So he refers to the churches as lampstands. And you would say, why is that? Old covenant imagery. Did you know that the lampstands that were in the tabernacle actually represented the people of Israel before God? They represented the people of Israel before God. They were the people of God that always stood before Him. They were the lampstands. You come in the New Testament, we are the lampstands. So he looks at us with ministry language. 
Do you know when God looks at you, He doesn't look with you with numbers. He doesn't look at you with culture. White, black, Chinese, okay, Greek. He doesn't look with you in a culture. He looks at you with ministry language. Which is why when you look at the first church, Ephesus, He tells them, if you don't respond and respond to my plan, I'm going to come and take your lampstand from you. Meaning, I'm going to come and take your ministry from you. I mean, you can still gather and have church. You can, you know, pass the plates. You can have specials. You can feed the homeless. But I'm not going to be there. So you can have church without having community. You can have church without having ministry. So the lampstand is Old Testament imagery language that's been brought in and fulfilled in a new covenant hour. Okay, you need another one. Uh, Priest. Is also, this is easy, verse 13. Old Testament priests ministered to the lampstands. They trimmed the wick. uh, They filled the lamps full of oil. That was Old Covenant. New Testament, Jesus is the one who's ministering to the lampstands in the New Covenant. In our verse, verse 15, His voice was like the roar of many waters. That is a reference to God speaking. You had God speaking in an Old Covenant hour, and you have God speaking in a New Covenant hour. Okay? In an old covenant hour, this is how God speaks. In a new covenant hour, that, that way God speaks is Jesus. Okay? And uh, I asked you to mark Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1. How, are, you, are you able to stay with me? Are you doing okay? In Hebrews, the Hebrews writer begins in verse 1 and he says, After God spoke long ago in various portions which literally means in a variety of ways, from Genesis to Malachi, he spoke in various portions and in various ways to our ancestors through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us in a son. In the past, he spoke to us all these ways. Today, how does he speak to us? Jesus. See, you know, in, in the past, God yelled from the mountain, hey, stop killing each other. Don't lie. Said that stuff, Old Testament. New Testament, how does he speak to us? Look like Jesus. Have going on in you what's going on in Jesus. Hey, have what drives you? Let, let, let what drives you what drove Jesus. Think about what Jesus thinks about. Hunger after what Jesus hungers. This is how he speaks to us. Old covenant, this way. New covenant, Jesus. Okay? So, in, in our verse, and I probably didn't even have to have you uh, turn there, so I apologize, I won't have you turn anywhere else. Uh, but in our in our verse, Revelation one fifteen, he says his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. See, the the rushing waters language was how God spoke in the old covenant. And um, if you go back, and you, I don't want you to do it, but if you go back in the book of Ezekiel, uh, three or four different times in chapter one and in chapter fourteen, you have God moving upon the scene, and when He moves upon the scene, it's the roar of rushing waters. And in chapter one, verse twenty-four, Ezekiel actually says the voice of God was like rushing waters. So you have the Old Testament God who speaks; it sounds like rushing waters when Jesus opens His mouth. It sounds like rushing waters. So the way God spoke in the Old Testament, God is still speaking today. He speaks through Jesus. The word for voice, John says his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. I thought this was really neat. The Greek word for voice is our Greek word today for the word phone. In fact, it's pronounced phone 
It's vessel language. Jesus was a vessel of the Father. He was a vessel of the Father's speaking. It's phony. One thing that irritates me, and that's probably too strong. I just don't understand it. I call someone, they don't answer their phone, and they say, hey, you've reached so-and-so. And I'm like, liar. <laughs> Sarah, I didn't talk to them. I talked to their phone. I talked to their phone. When I call my wife, I'm not looking at my phone. I'm talking to my wife. The phone is an instrument by which I can speak with my wife. That's the phone A. That's the word that they're talking about here. We call it voice, but it's not voice like you think of voice. His voice, it's he was a vessel of the Father. When you stand in the presence of Jesus, you literally hear the Father speak. Now here's what's so neat about this. As you go through the book of Revelation, and he, Jesus is known as the voice, as the way what God speaks. When you go through the book of Revelation, and you look at all the redeemed, and it talks about our voices, the voice of those who say they're Christians, guess what word is there? Phone, which means as Jesus was the voice of the Father, you and I are supposed to be the voice of the Father. See, as Jesus comes and he says, listen, I want to minister to you. I want you to be who God wants you to be. I am the voice of the Father and God wants you to be the voice of the Father. Uh, I said something to the kids right before the service that in the last days or rather at the judgment, God's going to separate us into two groups. He's going to separate us as sheep are separated from goats. There's not like wildebeest in the corner somewhere. You are either, this is really strong, you are either the voice of Jesus or you're the voice of something else. Jesus lived as you and I lived. He functioned as you and I functioned. He was tempted like you and I were tempted. And in every single one of those circumstances, He was the voice of the Father. Here's the convicting part. What voice are you? I look really good in church. People come up and shake your hand and say, Wow, man, man, wow. Man, wow, wow. I don't look so good sometimes when CJ is being who CJ is. When my daughter wakes up and never stops screaming until the time she goes to bed. Kind of glad you don't see me in those hours. Because it's easy to look like the voice when we're in this kind of setting. See, what do you and I look like out there? What are you speaking? See, what's coming out of your life? And I don't know how to communicate this to you. That's not just sermon language. See, I am... I am the voice of God to my kids when I'm at home and to my wife. Because I guarantee you, I've been around long enough to know that my kids are not going to remember my sermons. They're going to know how I talked with them. They're going to know how I played with them. They're going to see how I treated his, their mother. I'm going to be teaching them how God views women by the way that I teach her, by the way I treat her. I'm going to teach them how God drives in rush hour traffic just by them watching me. I've often used the illustration as I've got this little mirror at home, follows me, does whatever I do. He's about this tall. Surprising the language that he uses. Cren and I have joked, we've used the terms, I'm going to beat you. You know, just, my mom said that. You know? And I'm not kidding. It was just the other day, 
he was playing with one of his toys and he goes, I'm going to beat you. And I'm like, oh, I'm a bad father. <laughs> what, what, what voice are you? See, what, what voice are you? Jesus was the voice of the Father in his world, regardless of the circumstances, being exactly who, uh, who you and I are, living as you and I lived. He lived in oneness and intimacy with the Father, which you and I now have. And he was the voice of the Father. He was the vessel by which God spoke in the world. I, I believe with all my heart that God wants us to be that in the McDonald's playgrounds of our life. I do, I believe that. I think he wants us to be that in the rush hour traffic, in the gym, in the Starbucks restaurant, in the Walmart, on the service roads that only go one way and that are irritating. You have no idea why they would do that. He wants us to be the voice of God in our world. Are you that? Are you that? Because I propose to you that if you're not that, what are you speaking? Because I don't think any amount of church service can replace that. I don't think about any amount of money can, that can be given that can replace that. Jesus, we love you this evening. and John the Baptist came and he was the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Jesus came and was a voice. Jesus, I do. I want to be the voice of my generation. I want, to be the, I want to be your voice in my generation. I want to be your voice in my home. I want to be your voice in the restaurants of my life. I want to be your voice in Fitness Unlimited tomorrow. I want to be your voice, Jesus, in every single setting of my life. I've often thought as I'm, I'm interacting with my kids and I'm playing with my kids and and I, Karen and I have talked about how we just so desperately want them to love you. I just, I want you to speak to them. I want you to communicate them. In fact, I'm willing for my life, Jesus, to be as narrow as it needs to be so that you can speak through me to those that I love. And Jesus, I want to broaden that because I believe that's your heart. I, I want to, I allow you to narrow my life so that I can be your voice moment by moment every day. In fact, Jesus, I think I'd be okay with me never having a voice again. Just you speak. You carry the conversations. I want you so wrapped up and indwelled in my body that I'm not a part of anything that you're not a part of. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. And I talked to a guy about this just the other day at a church. And, and um, great guy and... He confessed to me that he had a horrible sense of humor. That Jesus was in his life, but he wasn't in his humor. He wasn't in the jokes that he told. He, he wasn't in the conversations that, God, that uh, guys had with him at work. He, he certainly didn't talk to his wife. I mean, just... I don't know about you, but I personally can't reconcile that in my life anymore. I don't want to differentiate between church and anything else. I don't want to differentiate between being used by God and then off time. I don't want to have off time. I want to have rest, but I don't want to have... I want to have... <laughs> I want to have phone I want to be a phone. By which I walk in my world and I'm the voice that my generation needs to hear. Are you, are you that voice in your work? Because I believe that God literally has put you in some places in your life 
because he desperately needs an accountant, he desperately needs a teacher, he desperately needs a carpenter, he desperately needs a factory worker. He wants to set you in the middle of that scene and say, just stand there, fall in love with me, and let me speak to everyone around you. Are you, are you letting that take place? I probably held you a little bit long, uh, so we're going to close, but I want to give you, we're not going to have any elaborate singing, I don't think tonight, just for time's sake. And um, Again, I don't want to twist your arm or pressure you on this, but if he's speaking to you why, why would you why would you sit there why would you not respond why would you not jump out of your seat and say and I am sick to death of the voice that I've always been I don't ever want to be that way again I give you permission Jesus to embarrass me press me do whatever you need to do in my life until I am your vessel in this world I want to be your voice period so I want to give you an opportunity to respond in these moments and no one's looking around and heads are bowed and eyes are closed. Would you want to slip out, come down and pray and no one's looking around. Little ones are okay too. I'll pray with you. Bless your heart, boy. Jesus. No one's looking around. We're just going to have a time of prayer. I'm not going to sit and count heads and watch, but just would you respond? Would you respond? Jesus, we want to kneel before you for a few moments and um, I can't imagine, Father, the variety of days that we've had. I know the day that I had, I came in tonight whipped, just tired. The family issues that are going on and uh, Karen and I's extended family and the pressure we feel. And I can't imagine what it's like to get up and go to a work and juggling this, that, and the other and the finances and the, and the hurts and the pains and the kids and the husbands and the, just the pray God that you would move in the midst of those situations and it means the world to me when you say you don't have to have the right answer this time Jeremiah just just sit there and fall in love with me just ha just let me have just let me have my way in your life Jesus you looked at the disciples and said don't worry about what you're going to say it will be given to you in the time that you need I, I want that I claim that in the name of Jesus I want to be tight with you, practicing your presence throughout my day.